For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. Golden Chain, Part 3, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Uh, This morning, we're once again back in our study of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. Uh, We've arrived in the course of our study together in chapter 8, where over the last several weeks now, we've been considering verses 28 through 30 in a text that is often referred to as the Golden Chain. Uh, The Golden Chain is a description from our text of five representative works of God Necessary to the salvation of a sinner. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. Five divine works. Five works of God, apart from which no one can be saved. Five links in an unbreakable chain. That unbreakable chain extending into eternity past, if you will. Five links terminating upon the glorification of the sinner to the eternal praise of God's glory in eternity future. Paul identifies the objects of that divine working as those who love God in verse 28. Those who are the called according to God's purpose. In other words... The objects of God's gracious work and salvation are his own people. Those people whom he has chosen to draw to himself. And as we've already seen in our text to date, his people consist of those whom he has foreknown. Uh, As theologians have said, those whom he has foreloved and predestined. In the eternal deliberations of God's own infinite mind, God has determined to set a distinctive or a distinguishing love upon a particular people according to the good pleasure of his own will. That makes people uncomfortable because we like to think that we have some control or some say in the matter. But all of this is in the eternal deliberation of God's own mind. In the eternal deliberations of his mind, God determined. In the language of Ephesians chapter 1, God chose us in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. In other words, before you were ever around, (laughs) before you'd done anything good or bad, before you'd ever been born. That divine determination in the mind of God, finding codified expression in divine decree, God predestines those whom he has determined to love. And he predestines them to be conformed into the very image of his only begotten son. Again, in the language of Ephesians 1, he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world so that, like his son, we should be holy and without blame before him. And that conformity, that sanctified purpose, if you will, for the purpose that the Lord Jesus Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, brothers and sisters, that's the aim of our salvation. You might have thought, some people might have thought, I thought back in the days when I'm in churches that don't teach the Bible, that salvation was all about my happiness, (laughs) my joy, my fulfillment. You go to most churches today, it's about our success, right? The winning edge for Christians. And that's not what our salvation is all about. It's not merely our forgiveness, not merely that we might enjoy the delights of heaven, but rather our salvation is about a redeemed humanity ransomed out of the slave market of their sin, so 
radically transformed as to be entirely conformed to the heart and mind and will and affections and character and conduct of his own, God's own son, and thereby accepted in the beloved. For the purpose that in the ages to come, we who first trusted in Christ would live eternally to the praise of his glory. That's what our salvation is about, amen? It is with the accomplishment of that purpose, decreed in eternity by God, that God himself in power now works in time through his governing providence on behalf of those whom he has foreloved and predestined. He works now on our behalf, resolved to bring all that he has decreed to pass. We know now, in the language of our text, we know that God is working all things together for our good. It's an amazing thought. Romans chapter 8, verse 3, God sends his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, God condemns sin in the flesh of his only begotten son. The granite foundation upon which our salvation is accomplished is the obedient life and the sinless sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ as our substitute. Certainly for our good, amen? God is working together all things for our good. God then, by his spirit, applies the blessings and benefits of Christ's work to the sinner. Through the preaching of his gospel, God effectually calls the sinner to himself. He is given life from the dead, granted repentance and faith, whereby he now believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ to the saving of his soul. He is justified through a gift of Christ's own righteousness, whereby that undeserving sinner is now reconciled to God and declared to be righteous in his sight. Undeniably, indescribably good. Amen? Now, having been justified, he is then reconciled, adopted as a son by Christ Jesus to himself. And God, in and through that sinner's life, God now working every circumstance, every difficulty, every trial, every moment of adversity, for the purpose of further setting that sinner apart to himself and further conforming him into the image of his son, graciously and mercifully good. That process, that process that lasts the extent of the Christian's life, terminating upon his glorification, that undeserving sinner glorified in the sight of God. When his faith becomes sight, his sanctification is complete, and the captain of his salvation, our captain, who's not ashamed to call us brothers, ushers us into eternal glory. Unfathomably good to us. Gracious, compassionate. That path from divine deliberation to eternal glory is laid out in our text. It's laid out in five representative divine works, five links in a golden and glorious chain, five works of our sovereign God. He is the one who declares the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46. From ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. God says, I will do all my good pleasure. We're talking about the work of God, amen? Not a work of man, not the devisings of man, not the imaginations of man, not the will or effort of man. It's not of him who runs, nor of him who wills. It is of him who shows mercy. God is at work to bring about our salvation, and it is a sovereign work. Now, this is the one. This is God. 
our omnipotent God, omnisapient God. This is God who is working all things together for our good. His purpose cannot be thwarted. His aims cannot be confounded. His hand cannot be restrained. So that should give us, brothers and sisters, great confidence, great boldness, great joy, great comfort, great encouragement. Give us great motivation to live for him, amen? His counsel shall stand. He will do all his pleasure. And Paul, in that, draws the inevitable conclusion. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can stand against us? No one and no thing. And we've considered the first two of those divine works in prior sermons, uh, those acts which originate with God in eternity, namely foreknowledge and predestination. This morning now, we begin to consider those acts of God that he performs in time uh, to work our salvation. He applies the benefits of Christ's saving work to the sinner, namely we're talking about calling, justification, and glorification. Those acts, calling, justification, and glorification are acts that we experience as children of God. We experience as the sons of God. We don't simply claim them. And I want to draw that distinction up front, okay? Those acts of God in eternity, God knows, according to the counsels of his infinite mind in eternity, God foreloves, God predestines. God then applies the implications, if you will, of his decree applies the saving benefits and blessings of Christ's work in time to then call the sinner, to then justify the sinner, and finally to glorify the sinner. All of that is God's work. Those last three works, calling, justification, and glorification, are works of God that we actually experience in our lives. Observably, evidently, we experience those things in our lives. In other words... Contrary to much of what we hear, if you grew up in churches like that, that I did, these are not things that we claim for ourselves. And I want that distinction clear in your mind. If God has done that work in you, there are evidences of that work in your life. And it's critical, it's important for your soul's sake that you consider whether or not God has done that work in your heart and in your mind and in your soul. Right? These are not things that we simply claim to ourselves. Now, growing up, um, it was entirely a decision of man. Your decision to follow Christ or to not follow Christ. Your decision to walk the aisle or not walk the aisle. Your decision to say the prayer or not say the prayer. Your decision to accept Christ or to refuse Christ. We call it decisionism. <laughs> and it is a plague. This is, these are sovereign works of God that God does in the life of the sinner. And it's important that we consider these works in our own life, in our own experience. Calling precedes our justification. Justification precedes our glorification. The Lord in his work follows the order here, or Paul follows the order of God as he lists these works in verses 28 through 30. Look at verse 28. And we know, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his own son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these, this predestined group, he also called. In other words, 
consistent with his decree in eternity to redeem a people for the sake of his own son, consistent with his own decree, those whom God has determined to save, he effectually calls to himself through or by a work of his spirit. The Bible clearly teaches this. This calling is not on the basis of a foreseen faith. This calling is not based merely upon God's prior knowledge of future events. This calling is rooted and grounded in God's divine decree. Rooted and grounded in God's determination, in God's resolve to save the sinner. For uh, 2 Timothy 1.9, listen to 2 Timothy 1.9. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Paul is speaking there of the very same calling, okay? He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, not according to foreseen faith, foreseen or otherwise, not according to anything we've done or not done. He has called us not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. And listen, this was his purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. I don't know how much more clearly that can be stated. We could end right now. It's at what time? Uh, Saved us and called us with a holy calling. That holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. That calling and God's decree intimately connected, right? That calling and God's foreknowing, that calling and God's predestination connected, So the foundation for this call, notice, the foundation for this call is not any work that we've done, not anything good or evil, but rather upon his purpose and his grace, his undeserved favor. And Paul describes to Timothy there that undeserved favor as given to those whom he would call before time began. Given to those identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, those who would be united to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, When was all of that given? When was that grace deposited, as it were? When was grace, when did grace begin to be shown in eternity past, before time began? Now think with me, think with me. Knowing that about this particular calling, this call must be then distinguished from that general call that goes out to all men in the universal preaching of the gospel. There's a difference between the general call of the gospel that goes out to all and this particular efficacious, effectual call of God on the sinner. They are not the same call, two different calls. There is a gospel call that is preached to all. The Lord commands all those who would be his disciples, Mark chapter 16, verse 15, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Is every creature foreknown? Is every creature predestined? Is every creature going to be called to God? Is every creature going to be justified, going to be glorified? No, right? There's a distinction. We're to preach the gospel to every creature. That's what we do. But God, multiple places in scripture attest to that. God now commands all men everywhere to repent. God himself in his decretive will, his prescriptive will calls all men everywhere to repent. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other, right? There is a general or a universal call 
to sinners to turn to Jesus Christ in the preaching of the gospel. And that's a sincere call. That's a sincere call. Any who would turn to Jesus Christ, the preaching of the gospel, any who would turn to him in faith would be saved, in no wise would be cast out. Now that call, a sincere call, is tragically and often an ineffectual call. It's always, always ineffectual apart from the effectual work of God by his spirit in the heart of a dead sinner. Apart from a work of God, it's always ineffectual, but it is tragically and often an ineffectual call. Why is that? The Bible says it's because men love darkness rather than the light. They love the darkness. There are many who refuse to come into the light. They would rather have their darkness, and so many refuse, resist to heed that call. Now, in our text this morning, Romans chapter 8, Paul isn't speaking of that call. He's not speaking of the general call of the gospel or the act of the human preacher. He's referring in verse 30 to an act of God, distinguishable in that respect. The gospel preached by disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ is a human act of the human preacher. This is referring to, in verse 30, an act of God. This is a call that is brought about through divine power. And this is a call, because it is brought about by God, this is a call that accomplishes the purposes that God intends. In other words, it's not an ineffectual call. This is an effectual call. This call is the outworking of God's decree. God has foreknown, God has predestined, and in accomplishing that which God himself has decreed, he calls the sinner to himself. This, in that sense, is a call in power. This is an effectual call. This is a call that precedes certain justification. All those whom he's predestined, that predestined group, he calls. That group whom he calls, he will in time justify. And that group that God himself has justified, he will bring to glory. It is a work of God in power upon the sinner. It's a divine act, an act of God, the outworking of God, God's decree. It's a call through which God himself works in the one whom he has foreloved and predestined. Remember, remember, this is our God who has said in his word, my counsel shall stand. I will do all my pleasure. What represents his counsel? His divine decree. The deliberations of his infinite mind expressed in divine decree. What is it that will stand? All his good pleasure. What is his good pleasure? That which he has decreed to come to pass. Men may resist the general call of the gospel all day long, rising early to resist it. But when God works in sovereign power, is there anyone who will restrain his hand? God says no. When God works in power to accomplish the purpose which God has intended, is there anyone who can stay his hand, thwart his aims, confound his purposes? No. This particular call of God accomplishes all that God intends. In that sense, it is an effectual call. And that doesn't mean that God drags the sinner kicking and screaming against his will. That's not how God operates either. We're going to see that in a moment uh, in our text. Uh, God makes him willing. Listen to this from our confession. Confession of Faith, chapter 10, article 1. I think the confession 
does an exceedingly good job at expressing what the Bible teaches on this subject. Concerning the effectual call, those whom God hath predestinated unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call. This call is by his word and by his spirit. Notice the two means of this call. The means that this call takes place is by God's word and by God's spirit. This call is by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation in Jesus Christ. Call consists of these things. One, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. Two, taking away their heart of stone, giving to them a heart of flesh. And three, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet, not against their wills or doing violent to their wills, violence to their wills, Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. That's a good description of the effectual call. It's through this effectual call of God in power that God himself gives new understanding to the mind. He renews the mind. He authors new affections in the heart. He gives us new desires. He enables, empowers, motivates our will. And being thus made willing, what does a sinner do? He turns turns from sin, turns to faith in Jesus Christ. He willingly comes. Not kicking and dragging and screaming. He willingly comes as called to faith in Jesus Christ. And why is that? Just think practically with me. His eyes are opened. Being once dead in sin, blind in sin, his eyes now open to the truth as it is in Christ. He sees the exceeding sinfulness of his own sin It righteously disgusts him. He sees Christ as exceedingly precious. What else is he going to do? He's going to turn to Jesus Christ in faith, willing to come. Listen, we live under the cloud of an evil and wicked deception. Born into this world, your eyes are blinded, your ears are stopped. You are dead in trespasses and sins. That thought isn't a quote-unquote natural thought. It's unnatural. That state isn't, quote, unquote, a natural state. It's an unnatural state. It's an irrational state. And what does God do? God removes that wicked deception, removes those wicked blinders from off of your eyes, takes that packed concrete away from that heart, gives you a new heart, new affections, new desires. He reveals Christ to you as precious, and he saves your wicked soul. That's what God does. What is a sinner going to do? Give me Christ or give me death. I want him and none else. Do you see? It's a turning to him. That's not a begrudging, oppressive, I want to go here and I want to live in my sin. No, that's not the way that works. I've heard that testimony before. God took me kicking and dragging and I loved my sin and wanted my sin. I'm sorry. God changes the heart of a sinner. It's through this effectual call that God in power effects this radical transformation on the heart and mind of a sinner. And sometimes that takes place. It's not... There's some of you here, when the Lord saved you, you can remember the day and the hour. The day that he opened your eyes and unstopped your ears. There are others that took place, like you, 
in your experience of that, it was this growing awareness, this inexorable, inevitable uh, coming to a knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done and your own sin and that growing conviction just snowballs, if you will, in your experience until you come to the realization, God has changed me, right? You see sin now as an enemy that you desperately long to kill. You see his word as a treasure that you desperately want to mine. Christ is suddenly precious. Paul asks the question essentially in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He asks essentially, who has made you to differ from another? Who is it who has made you to differ from another? The obvious answer to that question is God himself has made us to differ from another. Then why do you act as though you've not received anything? Right? Why do you glory as though you yourself have done it? What do you have that you did not receive? Why are those who come to Jesus Christ for salvation, why are they willing? Is it because of something inherently good in themselves? And something inherently righteous about their own heart, their own, no. Day by day, we walk side by side with those who are dead in trespasses and sins. Spurgeon says of them that the music of the gospel is like singing to a deaf ear. The dropping of the word is as dew on a rock. Why is it that you're not deaf to the gospel as they are? Why is it that your heart is tender? Why have your affections been transformed? Why are your affections and desires different? Why have you been changed? Are you really going to be so prideful as to say, it was my decision? You know, I came to the realization and this was my doing. Hmm. You see, one answer, one answer gives credit for the difference to the will of man. The other answer gives credit for the difference to the will of God. And that's where it belongs. God is the one who has made you to differ. The Bible is crystal clear. God is the one who has made you to differ. And that's not based on anything that you've done. It's based entirely upon the good pleasure of his own will decreed in eternity. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? You ever ask yourself that question? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come, t'was that same love which spread the feast that sweetly called us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. That's the issue. Unless God works in sovereign power and in grace upon our own heart and soul, we will perish in our sin. Article two of our confession, listen. This effectual call of God is of God's free and special grace alone not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature, the creature being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses. Well, he's only mostly dead. You ever see that movie, The Princess Bride? So, a children's reference. <laughs> the, the Princess Bride. He's only mostly dead. No, he's all dead. He's all dead. There's no mostly dead. So that The creature is wholly passive, being dead in sins and trespasses until 
being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. And that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. When we were going through the Gospel of John together, there is a section of John's Gospel called the Book of Signs, uh, wherein John, the Holy Spirit, selects particular signs and miracles to convey spiritual truth. That's what a sign does, doesn't it? A sign points to something. What do these miracles in the Bible do? What is the purpose of miraculous gifts? What is the purpose of the miracles, of the signs in Scripture? Those signs, those miracles, point to spiritual truth. When the Lord Jesus Christ stands out the, outside the tomb of Lazarus, he thanks God that he didn't come a couple of days sooner merely to heal Lazarus. He was there to raise Lazarus from the dead. And the Lord Jesus Christ stands outside that tomb, tells them to take the stone away. You know, Mary objects. He's been in there four days. He's going to stink. Uh, he's dead. All the way, all the way. Not Miracle Max dead. He's all the way dead. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in power, in power, calls him from the tomb. That's a picture of God calling to life a sinner from the dead. It's a picture of God's power. Listen to this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. What does a sinner do when the chains fall off, when his eyes are open, when he's taken from darkness into light? What does he do? He rises and he follows Jesus Christ. It's interesting that, that hymn, written by Charles Wesley, who's an avowed Arminian uh, Methodist, <laughs> I want to say that it, uh, um, if I remember the story correctly, it was Whitfield that heard this hymn and wrote to Charles Wesley, what has become of your free will now? <laughs> Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I wrestled myself out of those shackles and I dusted myself off and I ran out of there myself. No. Total depravity necessitates the effectual call. When you come to a greater sense of your bondage to sin, you have no difficulty at all with this truth from Scripture. John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can. They are incapable. They are unable. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him calls him. I want to give you a few examples of this from scripture. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is giving the reason why some people turn to Christ at the preaching of the gospel and why others do not. Paul is addressing, if you will, this very concept. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but, us to, but to us who are being saved. 
that being saved, uh, a lot of times we're used to, again, thinking of salvation as some monolithic event. It is a lifelong event. To us who are being saved, there is a moment in time when a sinner is justified, but then begins the process of sanctification that eventually leads to glorification. But being saved is a present passive participle for you grammar folks. Present meaning it's ongoing. Passive meaning I have nothing to do with it. It's, been, it's being affected in me by God. Right? To us who are being saved, present passive, it is the power of God. The message of the cross is the power of God. For it is written, verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. In other words, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, when I preach the gospel to most Jews, it's a stumbling block to them. When I preach the gospel to most Greeks, they think it's foolishness. But, verse 22, verse 24, but... To those who are called, literally, to those who are the called ones. To those who are the called ones, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. There's a difference in the way that they respond. And that difference is based upon the fact that they are the called ones. In other words, to those whom God has effectually called to himself, to those in whom the spirit of God is at work effectually giving them understanding and drawing them to Jesus Christ such that they savingly believe in him, the gospel is acknowledged by them to be the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's what makes them to differ from the others. Do you see? Are those who see Christ crucified as a stumbling block, are they called by God? No, that's Paul's point. They're called only generally in the preaching of the gospel. But here, Paul excludes them from that group of both Jews and Greeks who are effectually called. That group of Jews and Greeks who are effectually called, they see the message of the cross as the power of God and the wisdom of God. The general call of the gospel goes out to all, but the effectual call whereby a sinner is empowered and enabled to repent and believe, that call is for those who have been foreloved, predestined and will be justified and glorified. Remember the means of that as well. The means are the word of God and the spirit of God. Wisdom, that wisdom uh, revealed by his word, that power is applied by a work of his spirit, producing a new heart, a new life. These are the means. No one is going to be saved apart from those means. And this is the effectual call to which Paul refers. Look at 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. Paul is drawing a distinction there in 1 Corinthians. Peter is going to draw the same distinction here in 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter, Peter is writing to persecuted and dispersed Jewish Christians, largely in Asia Minor, right? He describes them in chapter 1 as elect 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Again, this, this connection between election and calling. He describes them as the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. But then he says to this elect people in chapter 2, verse 9. Verse 9. But you, this group, he says, you are a chosen generation. The word chosen is where we get our word elect. You are an elect people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, so that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. Those who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now, think with me. They were not the people of God, and now they are. They were not the recipients of God's mercy, and now they are the recipients of God's mercy. To what does Peter attribute the difference? Well, to their free will choices, obviously. <laughs> to their decision. No, Peter gives us the answer. To what do we attribute the difference? Peter gives us the answer. They are a chosen generation, and God in keeping with that decree, God himself has called them out of darkness. He has called them out of darkness. Think with me about the comparison. Again, Peter is addressing Jewish Christians in the dispersion, in the diaspora, okay? In John chapter one, they had been invited to the light before. Jesus came to his own, and what does John say? His own received him not. They rejected that. Why? Because men love darkness rather than the light. They didn't come in response to that invitation, that general call to the gospel. But here they come. Here they come. And why is it that they come? Because they are a chosen generation and God himself has called them out of darkness. God himself has turned them from darkness to light. Do you see the difference between the two? This is the effectual call. In the words of Paul from Colossians chapter 1, Paul says he has delivered us from the power of darkness and God has conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. That's a work that God does. He delivers us out of darkness and he conveys us to light. Into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. All of that is passive, do you see? Passive. Look at 2 Peter. There's one epistle there to the right. 2 Peter chapter 1. And Peter here speaks of the very same call, beginning in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also, now, for this very reason, because he has called us in this way, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. 
For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old, old sins. Listen, I walked an aisle. I said that prayer and I meant it when I said it. I was in church every time the doors were open. I went to every mass. We went to mass three times a week when I was growing up. Whatever your profession may be, what does Peter say? He who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness. Therefore, verse 10, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your decision sure. Be even more diligent to be sincere when you ask Jesus into your heart. No. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, what are the th- these things that we're to do? We're to add to our faith, virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, and so on. If you do these things, you will never stumble, for it's in this way an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that we work our way to heaven, that we earn heaven by doing all of those things. No, all of those things are in evidence, an evidence of our calling, an evidence of work. Who is it that works in us? God works in us according to his goodwill and pleasure. Therefore, what does Paul say? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice how that call and election, again, are unbreakably connected. Make your call and election sure. How do we know? How are we to be sure that we've been called of God? Think with me. Think carefully. How do you know that you've been called by God? It's an age-old question that at some point we all grapple with. If you're reading your Bible, you understand good theology, I remember when it first dawned upon me that everywhere I looked in the Bible, I saw God's sovereign work in salvation, and I thought to myself, how do I know that God has called me? How do I know that God has done that work in my heart? How do I know that God has saved me? Where are we to look? What does the Bible say? We're to look at evidences. We're to trust in God. We're to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to put our faith and trust in him. He is faithful to his word. He will not break his promises to us. How do we know that we're among those whom God has called to himself. Well, if you're continuously looking within your own heart, often when you look there, you're going to be sadly disappointed. So you can't consistently just look at your own affections, look at your own desires, look at those things that you say that you want. You may want them one day and not want them the next. Our heart is a fickle and wandering thing. You're not simply going to gain an answer to that question by worrying yourself over the the decrees of God. Who knows the mind of God? Not one of us. So we can't assuage or we can't assault our own hearts and minds with questions that we don't have answers to. Those things are known to God alone. Rather, we are to look to the means of assurance that Peter here has given us. Verse 3. His divine power 
has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are we to do? We're to grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that comes through our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where does our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ come from? It comes from God's word. His word reveals the Lord Jesus Christ to us. Therefore, verse 5, growing in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving all diligence, giving all effort, strive to add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. Add to that knowledge, self-control. These things are in a... They're in a specific order, in this specific order, for a reason. These things are connected, and they all grow and build upon themselves. As you add to your faith virtue, holy living, goodness, as you add to your faith virtue, add to that virtue knowledge. As you add knowledge to faith and striving after holy living, you grow in self-control. As you add self-control, you persevere and endure through trials and difficulties, right? You grow in endurance and adding to that endurance is godliness, right? So add, pursue these things to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. It's like a baby, right? Has all the parts and then he grows. All these parts are present with the Christian. You have some semblance of them, grow in them, pursue them diligently, give all diligence to grow in these areas, Paul, uh, Peter says, be even more diligent to make, in this way, to make your calling and election certain, to assure your heart before him. This effectual call of God, the effectual call of God bears fruit in the life of a genuine believer. The call is effectual. It produces fruit. And it's in this way that we can assure our hearts before him. If you say to yourself, I got this, Right? Whatever it is, I'm saved. Nobody's going to convince me otherwise. And these evidences don't, aren't existent. Your heart's not been changed. Your mind's not been renewed. You don't have these desires, these affections. That joy, that love, that encouragement, that motivation, that will, this is not true of you. Where are we to look? Is it my decision that determines no, is it the will of man that determines? No, it is the work of God that determines. We're to look at the evidences, and it's in this way Peter says that we can assure our hearts before him. John Newton wrote a hymn we sang this morning. <laughs> Do I think that God, in the ordinary course of his providence, grants this assistance in an irresistible manner or affects faith and conversion without the sinner's own hearty consent and occurrence? I rather chose to term grace invincible rather than irresistible. I like that. For it is too often resisted even by those who uh, believe. But because it is invincible, it triumphs over all resistance when he is pleased to bestow it. For the rest, I believe no sinner is converted without his own hearty will and concurrence. But, if he, is not, um, but he is not willing till he is made so. Why does he at all refuse? He refuses because he is insensible of his state. 
because he knows not the evil of sin, the strictness of the law, the majesty of God, whom he, has offend, whom he has offended, nor the total apostasy of his heart, because he is blind to eternity and ignorant of the excellency of Christ. Because he is comparatively whole, he sees not his great need of a physician. Because he relies upon his own wisdom, his own power, his own supposed righteousness. That's you this morning. Pray that God would open your eyes. Pray that God would effectually call you to himself. Pray that God would allow you to see the truth. Newton continues, now in this state of things, when God comes with a purpose of mercy, he begins by convincing the person of sin, judgment, and righteousness. He causes him to feel and to know that he is lost, condemned, helpless creature. Then discovers to him the necessity, sufficiency, and willingness of Christ to save them that are ready to perish. Save them without money or price, without doings or deservings. Amen? Praise the Lord for his grace. If God is for us, who can stand against us? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thanks for this. Uh, we thank you for this glorious truth. We're grateful to you uh, for your word, for your promises, and Lord, for your work in our own hearts and minds by your spirit. Thank you, Lord, for condescending to do such a gracious and compassionate thing as to save undeserving sinners. Uh, we are grateful for the person and work of your son, which has secured that salvation for us. And Lord, we look to you in faith, um, knowing there's nothing that we can do to earn or merit uh, any grace or favor from you, um, but with gratitude in our hearts, knowing that Jesus Christ has accomplished it all on our behalf and that you apply it all and that you are doing that work in us and for us um, to the praise of your grace. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would be gracious to us in that. Please do that work, Lord, with, which only you can do by your spirit and have your way in our hearts and minds that we might be trophies, trophies of your grace into eternity proclaiming your praises, the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. If there's anyone here, Lord, unconverted, I pray, God, please, um, break their heart over their sin, um, crack open the rebar, solidified concrete that is packed in around their heart and give them a new heart in Jesus Christ to the praise of your glory. And we pray for your people, God, that you would encourage them through these truths to stand with boldness and confidence in their faith, not dwelling upon uh, themselves inordinately, but looking to Jesus Christ in faith, uh, knowing that through faith in him we will conquer. We love you and we thank you for all these blessings in Jesus' name. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.